As we get ready to begin tonight, would you turn with me to Isaiah 53? Actually, we're going to start in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13. Come to the central feature of the Messianic psalm, the Messianic poem that's here. Come to the center. Though this is what the is the the core of what is presented. It is the center chapter. And tonight we will be talking about the center verses of the center chapter. It's one of the more important passages for us because of the way God says that He wants to speak to us, how He wants us to know that He's there. Sometimes He's expressed that God, if He's... As I heard yesterday, a man was expressing the views of a of a non-believer, and he said, if God is there, why doesn't He make some contact with us? Well, He has made contact with us. And the Bible points out three ways at least. Now, there are other ways we can we can say He does it, but there are three ways that we definitely find the Scripture that He is shouting at us. Number one, He is shouting at us through the heavens. Creation shouts at us that He's there. I was distracted tonight in my preparation. I was up at the prayer chapel, prayer chapel, and we had a beautiful sunset. We haven't had very many this this year. We have we have a lot of them sometimes, but haven't been very many. But it was spectacular. And you think of the color. You think of the things that are happening and what went together and how drab the world could be. But God created it that way. That tells us something of Him. But that's only the beginning. There is a second way. And we have this verse at the top. It, it's, again, the introduction here. Paul is speaking about the gospel. This is chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, that's not where we're going to be, but I, I think we need to stop there so we can appreciate what we're reading tonight. I think it's an often overlooked feature. Now, in this chapter, he's, chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians is about the resurrection. Some had suggested there was no resurrection, and he vehemently opposes that concept. But he starts off by saying, this is the gospel which I preach to you. This is the gospel in which you stand. You have stability. All right? And he says, that's what it is. And so now he lists the gospel in this. And he says, for I delivered to you for first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, a lot of times we think about the gospel and we think the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And that's accurate. That is the gospel, the good news. But Paul doesn't say it that way. Here's the way he says it. That here's the good news I delivered to you. The Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures. Exactly the way it was described. That the plan which was revealed has been fulfilled. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in exactly the way the Scriptures said. So the first way we can we know there's a God is because of creation and the, the, the outstanding testimony of the way things are. The second way we can know it is because He gave us His Word and has a plan which He is fulfilling. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the strong undergirding elements of the gospel message. It's what sets the Bible apart from other religious works. 
written over a long period of time, described by um, 40-some different people, all aiming at one thing, and we're going we're to be right in the center of it, the gospel tonight. But the gospel that we're going to be thinking about tonight, the presentation of that gospel, was presented 700 years before the events it describes. 700 years. That is God shouting at us that what happened in the events of the life of Jesus Christ were not simply a religious teacher having some accidents happen to them that his followers misinterpreted. They are the fulfillment of a plan which he had from the beginning right through to the end. The third way that God screams at us, of course, and this is the foundational one, the Paul goes on in this chapter, chapter 11 or chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, to describe as this, he rose from the dead. The resurrection from the dead, it, again, the beginning of Romans, we were in it yesterday at our church, and he was the son of David according to the flesh, but he was declared, this is God declaring it, he was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Right, that, that that's the, the core of the message. So in those three ways, if anybody has heard the message, the three things that they can they, they're going to have to overcome to go back to their sin and say, I don't want that, I don't believe it, is this. The creation is there and it's amazing creation and it's shouting to you. The God's word, the prophecies given over fifteen hundred years shout at you. The testimony to a resurrection shouts at you. If you get past that, well, then I don't think you really want to hear the truth of the Word of God. And that's the way he's presenting it. Now, I want to look at that because tonight we go to to a passage which I will just say that there are those who, I remember reading through one commentary on it, and he had very little to say about it. He just had very little to say. He said, wow, this is something he has so little to say. And he said, and this was his, and he's, he does a lot of working commentary, but he said this, the passage speaks for itself. I don't want to mess it up. So I'm going to make, and he did, he made about a half a dozen comments on the whole thing and just says, let it hit you. So in a sense, just reading through this with an understanding of what's coming later is enough. But in another sense, we want to take some time to look at the details of it. So let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer and we will look at the passage together. <clears throat> Father, we come before you. We give you thanks for your, your seeking after us, not leaving us, not deserting us. And Father, we come and give you thanks that tonight you are moving by your Spirit, still moving, still drawing us towards yourself. We're coming asking you to do your work tonight through your word that Jesus Christ will be exalted, that your Spirit will have sway in our lives. And your purpose for us will be fulfilled and your name glorified in it. So Lord, teach us from your word. We thank you for it. And we look to you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when we come to this section, and it starts in Isaiah chapter 52, in uh, verse 13, we come to the center of this passage. It is the fourth of four passages, which we call the the servant songs. There are four servant songs. We've, we've already considered three of them. 
The first is found in chapter 42. And in that chapter, we are told that God has put His Spirit on this servant. And He's told that that servant was kind. He is the one who won't break the bruised reed, won't quench the smoking flax. So He'll be kind on the one side, but on the other side it says that that servant is determined. That He has a purpose for which He came and He won't move from it until it's fulfilled. The first servant song. In chapter 49, that's in this central section of the, of the book, He talks about the fact that Israel has rejected God and now he is sending his servant to bring Israel back. But he says this, not only is he sent to bring Israel back, but that's not enough. He says that I'm going to make this servant a light to the nations. And even though he's going to suffer, he will be glorified. All right, that's the second psalm. The third one we had just a couple weeks ago, it's in chapter 50. And there it talks about the obedience of the servant, that this, that what would happen to him was not going to happen to him by accident, nor unwillingly. And he, has, he, he is put in contrast to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had heard the word of God, but they passed it by. But he says, this man, when he comes, his ears are going to be open. He will hear the message. And hearing the message and understanding what it will cost him to follow through with his message, he will commit himself to it. And so he'll be the one who will not hold back his back from the ones that, that smite it. That, that he will not avoid humiliation, the spitting, the, the plucking out of the beard. He's not going to do that. He's going to go right through because he's determined to accomplish the purpose of God. Now, in a sense, it's, this is kind of like one of those symphonies where they, they drop in the, a theme music way back here, and they just, here's a line of it. I know it happens in the Ninth Symphony, and it just pops up and then disappears into, into the stuff, and then it pops up again over here, and then there comes a moment when it, it becomes the core, and it takes over. And in this chapter, the servant, which has been hinted at, is described in fullness. It's a tremendous chapter. Now, again, it is also, again, to get us clear about how it develops, there are 15 verses, 12 in chapter 53 and 3 in the end of chapter 52. They're one one continuous song. But in a real sense, they are divided into three-verse stanzas. All right? So there are five stanzas. And again, just to remind you that as we go through this, there, of those five stanzas, this is the central chapter of the, of the last section of, of Isaiah. Of the 27 chapters, this is the central one. Of those, of this, in this song that's sung at this particular point, the central chapter, or the ch- central verses are verses 4 si- through 6, the gospel, the clearest presentation in a sense of the gospel in the Old Testament. Because right at the center of everything sits the Lord Jesus Christ, His power. Now, what is the section about? What does He have to say? And all, again, I want to do is look at them. But remember their stanzas. Each one has a particular point. They overlap to a degree, but they each have somewhere they're going. I would make one last note of just overall viewpoint. It starts with the servant exalted, and it ends with the servant exalted. All right, let me get clear of that. It begins with a servant who is going to make is going to be prosperous, or that, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. It ends with him also prospering, and in between it, 
is a message concerning what he would do. Let's go back to chat the first section. And then on your outline there, it says this concerning it, that this is God's servant and he will be exalted. That's the point of the first three verses. Let's read them together and then we'll, we'll look at them. Behold my servant. This is chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on his account. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Now again, let me just say as we go through this that um, it's interesting to note that this passage, which is probably the clearest presentation of what the Lord does in the Old Testament, as condensed presentation, right, is not used often in the Gospels to explain the what happened there. I think there's a reason for that, right? Again, this is this again. I, I'm not the Spirit of God, and I don't know what was on the minds of those men. But you know, if the story was put in terms of this passage, it would be easy for somebody to come and say later that what they did, what the apostles did is got together, looked at what it said here, and then concocted a story that fit it. Now, that wouldn't have been possible in the day when they wrote the Gospels because there were too many characters around who had seen the facts. So they can't concoct the story. They have to go with the facts the way they were because someone could point out that it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. I think it was left there. Now, again, I want to say this one point I was I didn't make a minute ago. But if you've ever wondered in in First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, where does it say that those things it says, according to the scriptures, where does it say that it's often <laughs> where do you find all these things? Well, if you ever wondered before, here it is. Everything it says there, except the only one point that that Paul makes about the gospel there that is not included in this chapter is the is the prediction of three days. That comes from other places. But everything else is right here. This is according to the Scriptures. So what does he say first? He says, Behold, my servant will prosper. The prosper there, um, that's a stronger word than just to prosper. You know, you could have things go your way and that they prosper. You know, so one guy prospers in his business and then one doesn't. Nobody can figure out. The idea of prospering here is to have a plan which is carefully thought out, which is then carefully executed. And because it's both thought out and executed accurately, it works. says, when my servant comes, he has a plan from the very beginning. Right? And this, you pick that up in the Gospels, don't you? That Jesus knew when his time was. He kept saying, you know, it's not my hour. This isn't my hour. This isn't the right time. Because he had a plan from the beginning to the end. And he knew exactly where he had to be. And even when he began to unfold that plan to his disciples, they had a hard time with it. You know, you can't go to Jerusalem, you're going to end up dead. <laughs> That's exactly what's going to happen. And he began to tell them. He, he himself prophesied what was going to happen there. And he could do that because he knew the plan. And that's why he starts out here. 
What he describes here is a plan, but remember that plan was not concocted. It wasn't designed when Jesus got to this earth. It was designed from way back there. It's one of the more amazing things to me that at the same time that God creates and, and puts everything into motion, he is condemning his son. He's already agreed to this. He knows the plan. He knows how it's all going to work out. And the details are still are already there. Then he goes on to say this. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, in the next verse, it says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people. That is a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy. Again, here, here's... Deuteronomy says this. If, if the people of God will follow me, I will bless them in a way that everybody's going to go, Wow, look how blessed they are. But he says the opposite is also true. If they don't follow me people are going to look at what happens to them and back up and say, whoa, what happened to them? Why did that come to pass on their behalf? So that's what he's picking up that thought there. He says, just as many were astonished at you because he's prophesying concerning the fact that that nation is going to go into captivity. What happened when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and finishes everything was terrible. And a nation which had so much promise and so much opportunity comes to a place where it's leveled. Everybody is gone. Eh, maybe a few left there. But almost everybody has gone to Babylon. He says, now just as, as people were astonished at you because of the terrible things that happened, now he goes to his servant. So, and he's thinking about the, the servant. He says, so his appearance was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. That's an amazing prophecy. Because a man can die for a number of reasons. He can die a number of ways. But the idea that is presented in those verses is this, that Jesus, or the servant, and we'll, we'll jump too far ahead, that the servant will go through something so that his body will be will be marred will be bruised beat up beyond human recognition in other words he could not you wouldn't even know who he was by the time it was that's the thought that's that's carried there now i don't want to take a long time on that because the bible doesn't concentrate a lot on the suffering of jesus as he goes to the cross it, it says almost nothing about it so i don't want to go, but to fulfill the prophecy, to get the idea of the fulfilled prophecy. Think about what happens to Jesus in the last hours of his life. And it doesn't begin in his arrest. It begins before his arrest. Because before his arrest, after he has talked to his disciples, he goes to a place called Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, he begins to pray about what's right ahead of him. What's right ahead of him is so overwhelming to him that he actually said, if there's a way out of this, then we want that way out. And that's the one who has spoken. He's, he's got his face like a flint to the end, but at that point, he's overwhelmed with what's going on. And the pressure of taking on the sin of the world and the pressure of a break between himself and his father becomes so intense that blood pours or comes bursting through his, his flesh. Now, that all happened before anybody arrested him. Now, that's a traumatic experience. That would change your constitution right there. And, that, and if we're reading it correctly, that prayer time went on for several hours. 
of intensity. There is some indication, I'm not going to go into that too in detail, but the way it's worded, that if angels hadn't come to rescue him, he would have died from the physical. It's kind of the thought there that, and that seems to be something we talk about in Hebrews, that he was, though he was there, that he was saved from death. Where was he saved from death? Well, it, it would, there's a thought there, but it was very intense. Now, during the course of the night, he won't get any rest. He will be beaten by the guards in the Sanhedrin. Right? And in that beating, one of the features of it was that they blindfolded him and then punched him in the face. They not only slapped him in the face, they punched him in the face. That means that those punches are coming without any possibility of dodging or protecting. That he doesn't know when they're coming and he is going through. That would have been brutal. And that didn't happen just once because later on the Roman soldiers are going to do a similar type of activity. While they are there, they are going to, the Roman soldiers later on are going to take a, a crown. Remember the crown of thorns that's just, and those are big thorns. And they're going to ram it down onto his head. Then they're going to take a rod that they had. It says a reed, but it's, it's more than just a reed. It's a rod. And they beat him on the head with it. I'm going to, and we're going to make you the king. And they hit him. In the morning when Pilate is trying to let him go, apparently to try to get some sympathy out of the people, he has Jesus scourged. That's beaten on the back. That's beaten on the front. So he's been up all night. He's gone through Gethsemane. He's been beaten in the face. He has been marched all over the place. He's now been scourged, and that's when Pilate presents him. After that takes place, he'll be hung on a cross, in the heat of the uh, Jerusalem sunshine, and he will die there. At the end of that die, as he comes to the end of that death, just to make sure he's dead, a Roman guard will shove a spear right up into his chest cavity. Now, what? The point that the writer is making is that he would be unrecognizable marred more than man he, he doesn't look like a man anymore how did he know that the romans could have cut his head off in an awful hurry he could have died a lot of ways which would have still been death which would not have accomplished this but god already knows he knows what his son will go through and when we step back and say why would he make him go through that there is an answer to that. It's going to come up in the passage, of course. What's the answer to that? That's how bad my sin was. That is the price of sin. This is the unmasking of sin for what it really is. We, we, we get why, do, why is sin tempting? Because we think there's something good about it, right? We think there's something blessed about it. But in this experience of Jesus, it's just unmasked. It's torn back. The, the curtain's pulled back. This is what sin does to a person. And this is what the cost is. So at the, as he speaks about that, he says he's going to be marred more than any man. But then it says this, verse 15. There's a purpose for that. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Now, sprinkling of many nations here. He picks up a word. This is vocabulary. This is from the book of Leviticus. The sprinkling, 
the word used for sprinkle here is used in the book of Leviticus all the way through the law to as a means of cleansing. Sometimes it used oil. Sometimes they did with, with blood sprinkled on. Sometimes it was water. But it always spoke of the removal of defilement. And he says this. He'll go through this. He'll be marred. But it's so that he can sprinkle many nations. Because he's to be a light to the nations. And in order to be the light, as he needs to be, he's going to also have to cleanse them. They says, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. And in, I want to take you back to chapter 49 in one of the other passages here. Um, it says in chapter 49, verse 7, about the middle of the verse, it's, um, he's speaking to him who's despised. But he says, kings will see it and arise. And princes will also bow down. Now, I don't know if you are here when we got to that, but that idea of the kings arising is not the idea like um, like the king did when he heard the, the the hallelujah chorus and he stood up, all right? And he stood up in honor of the Lord. That's not what's got the thought here. The thought of, in both these passages, it's this, that men who had power and have not submitted to the Lord are going to suddenly realize that the one that got beat up, the one that died, the one who who was shamed in such a horrific way is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and they are going to stand up in fear. This is this is a stand up and prepare to fight to do something because they are they are overwhelmed by the reality of what they're what they're seeing. That the, can the two be the same one? So he starts off here by telling us that despite everything he goes through, he will be exalted. Second part. So then it, it goes to in chapter 53, verse 1. Second verse goes on here. Who, is, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, that is a, that's a statement of astonishment. All the way through the book of Isaiah, and particularly in this last section, you'll, you'll see that God is continuously astonished by the lack of response of the human race. Remember he had said earlier that, is my arm, is my hand too short that he can't save? And all the way through the book of Isaiah, you have to, if you read through there, you got to catch this. There is this thought in Isaiah's mind that all you have to do is come to God and it can take care of everything. And you won't come. You just won't come. And it's a concern to him, deep concern. So he says, who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, remember we saw over the last couple of weeks, the arm of the Lord is the saving arm. It is the powerful arm which has the capacity to save. To whom has it been revealed? And that's just a statement of astonishment. And he goes on, he says, for he grew up before him, that's before God, that is the Lord grew up before God, like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Right? This is God. All the way through in these, these prophecies, if you go back over those four, you find out this. The Lord delights in this one. My servant. This is the one I delight in. I'm going to put my spirit on him because I delight in him. Because he listens to what I say and he does it. Now he says he's, he's, something's happening. I don't, know, I don't know. Have you ever stopped and think of what? That the Lord of glory was on the earth for 30 years before he said anything that we know of. The anointing wasn't wasn't complete yet. The Spirit of God hadn't come on him in the fullest sense. He hadn't been baptized. It's, it's after that baptism that his ministry really begins. 
At this point, he's not ministering, but he's still the Son of God on earth. And he calls him here a root. And this is going to take you back to chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah. You can go back here sometime. It says, and out of Jesse's root, there's going to come one, right? He's going to come out of Jesse. And, and the thought here is of a, of a tree that's been cut down and it, it's gone and, and it's dried up. But out somewhere down the line on this dead tree is a root that still has a little bit of life in it. And you're in a desert place, but somehow in this vast deserty place, that root sprouts and a little shoot comes up. Now, if you were looking at it, you probably would miss it. That's, that's the thought in this passage. You wouldn't, you wouldn't notice it. But God the Father has noticed it. Jehovah has noticed it. In the desert of Israel, and the desert was left of what, again, the great house of David was down to a very bad situation. But a sprout comes up. All right? But God doesn't do a lot for him in, in, in a human sense. You, it's surprising to me. I don't know. I, I remember at the very beginning when I first was studying the Word of God, thinking, that's strange. That's strange. Because he says, it goes on here, and he said, the, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Nothing that, that would attract us. You know, we don't know what the Lord looked like. Again, you see all the pictures. We do not know what the Lord looked like. So if you got that picture and you go around heaven, you're not going to find him. You know, which which one is it? And if you find somebody that looks like it, it's not him. All right? Because we don't know what he looked like. It's interesting that all these things are said about the Lord, and it never once doesn't we don't we don't have any reference. How tall was he? You know, what's because it wasn't important. What we do know about him is that there was nothing about him that set him apart except for who he was as the servant of God. He doesn't have something... Again, I'm not going to say what he doesn't have. <laughs> and I, could get, I could get in arguments with people. Maybe he had this. But we have a tendency to think he, he must have been some charismatic person who goes out and, and just everybody flocks to him, but there's no picture of that. He's no form. That, that were really, when I was a kid, I was looking at this, you know, when I was young in the Lord and looking, why didn't God give it to him? Surely he, he should be given, he should be made handsome, right? <laughs> Surely he should be a little bigger than the other guys. He should have the Saul look, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else. Somebody that commands by their deep, resonating voice. All right. A guy came to Furman when I was a student there and he was a, he was a chapel speaker. I thought, boy, with your voice, you could you could read the paper, and it would sound like powerful. <laughs> he, he was it was really quite something. Uh, his just deep, deep, commanding voice, but we don't have anything like that described to us. What it says to us that that's not there, and the Father didn't give him that because there was nothing to attract us to him except what he is in his essential being. And then he goes on. To say something else that come, not only were the people not attracted to him, but this again, this is prophecy. The pro- prophecy part is what I want you to get. You know who the Lord is in a sense. But how would a man guess this? He says he was despised and forsaken of men, 
a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we didn't esteem him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. This is the Son of God on the earth, way back there. And what does it say? He's a man of sorrow because he's going to actually become a man and live like us. His father died. That is his, his human father. But it was Mary as his mother. And from a human perspective, his father was Joseph. Joseph isn't there at the end there. That means, and again, he would go through the experience, and that's a tough experience in those days, to have the, the household provider die, and he has then the responsibility of that falls on his shoulders. So he is the one who has to take care of that. And in doing that, he begins to feel what people go through. I guess one of the reasons he's high priest. He knows what we go through. But there is another dimension of this which is important in the passage he picks up because it says he's acquainted with grief. And that, that word for grief really is a word for disease, sickness. He's acquainted with the sickness of the human race, both, both physical and spiritual. I wonder what it was like to live for 30 years on this earth and have people all around you dying who need God. And there's nothing really to do about it. You know it's not time yet. Now, it goes all the way down, though, and this is where, where again, I want to see the prophecy part. This prophecy is fulfilled in that last day because it says one who when he is taking on this grief, one who we turn our face away from. This is exactly what happened. Remember that what takes place when Jesus is beat up. Why, why is he lashed? Why is it that he was so, so physically abused that day when Her- or excuse me, when Pilate puts him out in front and says, Behold the man! <laughs> Let him go! I mean, we've done enough! What they say? Now, why is he there? What is what's going on? He's acquainted with grief. He's taking on their sin. And what did they do? They did the same thing that you would do if you saw a human being in that condition. You would look away. It was horrific. As one who you hide your face from. We didn't esteem him. How did they not esteem him? Crucify him. Crucify him. Now, this is 700 years before it happened. And we can keep referring to the gospel because it follows exactly the gospel story. It follows exactly the facts that that are there. But then we get to the core of it, and that's what I want to get today. We're going to do the last part of this chapter next week, but I want to get to the core. Because he says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried this verse four. This is the center of the whole book. And then comes this. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now all he's saying there is they people looking at what was taking place. We looked at the situation at the cross and we came to this conclusion. And aside from a few men, apostles who might have understood, and I don't know that they particularly understood. The Bible, the Old Testament, is crystal clear that cursed is a man who hangs on a tree 
he was cursed. And they were accurate in their consideration of that. He, we, we esteemed him smick, smitten of God and afflicted. It is accurate. He is dying for sin. The one point, and this is what the writer says here. And remember, this is way before the cross ever takes place. Way before the gospel is completely clear. But he says this, you're accurate in your assessment that he is bearing, that he's paying for sin. The problem is it's not his sin. It's your sin. And that's what he goes on to say here. The words used have to do with violent death, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was literally pierced through for our transgressions. The crucifixion involved piercing through him and pinning him to a cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon upon him, and by his scourgings were healed. Now, in a sense, the events of the cross and what those men did to him are fulfilled there again. We, we see the, the issues. But when it says the chastening for our well-being was upon him and by his scourgings we are healed, those aren't the scourgings that Pilate inflicted on him. Right? The scourging we have here. This is the scourging that takes place when the Lamb of God bears the wrath of God on my behalf, on your behalf. This is a tremendous chapter. He goes through it. He says that by those scourgings, you're healed. And then he goes down to what, what the gospel's all about. And I want to look at this because he, this is kind of the gospel message as it's presented in Isaiah. This is kind of the core of, of the whole messianic poem. All, all poem, all we, all of us, that's you, me, that's everybody here, have gone astray. How do we go astray? One of the most, the simplest ways to describe what happens to men. You know, sometimes you say to people, you know, that you've sinned against God, and they don't see that they've sinned against God. And there's a lot of people, let's face it, who their sins against God really wouldn't amount to much in the viewpoint of the human race. I mean, when you compare it to some of the things you could do, they do live in a sense of moral life. They do try to do the right thing. They take care of their families. They're not... They're not evil people in the sense that they're trying to do all the bad things they can come up with. And again, it was one of those, you think at the very beginning, how am I going to, how am I going to bring conviction? And then, then we go to some of those things, and it's true. Have you ever lied? One lie is enough. I'm not sure that works. I don't know. It, 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 technically, you won, all right? <laughs> because who hasn't lied? I mean, it's that we can technically beat anybody with that one, all right? But does it bring conviction? Does it bring a person to a place where I say, well, that's going to destroy my life? When you know as well as I do that if you've got that, they're going to look around and say, well, then everybody is gone. Then there is no possibility because <laughs> as I may have lied, but Okay, I had to think back about it, but I know people all around me who are lying every, you know, on a regular basis. They're doing it all the time. How can this be? How can God? Anyway, back to our point. Now, here's what Isaiah says. He's not going to take them to particular sins. He's going to say this. Here's what we are. This is where we got in trouble. 
Oh, we like sheep went astray. Astray from what? Astray from the relationship with God from for which we were designed. God had something in mind when he created you. Human race is in the image of God. And that's not just to show forth the greatness of God, although that's part of it. It is so that a human being can know God intimately. That is what the great, that's the great potential of your life. So we're alive and we're breathing. And he says, here's what happened. With that as a possibility, we all went astray. I love this picture because it gets, it's the thought of having, here I have all these sheep right around me. If I don't do something about it, they won't stay here. Where will they go? Well, they'll start wandering away. But they aren't all going to go that way. Or are they all going to go that way? A group of them might go together that way, but eventually they'll break off. If you sit there with that group of sheep around you and don't do anything, in time, they're going to be everywhere. Because they each had their own plan, their own way, their own direction. You see, the essence of sin is not just, it's not some technicality. It's this. You were right with God and you didn't, and they right beside God, and you didn't want to stay there. God wasn't interesting to you. He, he's worthy of praise and honor and worship, and He's the giver of the fountain of all blessing, the giver of life. And you saw, and again, this is where the things come, and you thought about sex, and maybe that is the way to go. Or you thought about getting rich, and that's the way to go. Or you thought about seeing the whole world and visiting every place there was to visit, and that's the way to go. And you can go on down the line. You might have thought that this is the way to go. You didn't all go the same way, right? We, we, if we were telling our testimonies, we could give a, a variety of ways that we went. But every one of those ways was away from the one who had created us for himself. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we did that by just picking up our own way. Paul says this in the New Testament, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were living according to the course of this world. People were helping us decide which way we should go. So there is a sort of a herd mentality there. But he said, practically speaking, here's what we did. We lived according to the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And when it says the desires of the flesh and mind, it's not, it says in, in some translations, the lust, but it it's just powerful desires, all right? They're not necessarily, in and of themselves, evil desires. But they are desires. That's what controlled us. And he says, because of that, he says here, we've gone astray. Paul says in the New Testament that we were children of wrath. We were under the wrath of God. But all we had to do was come back. Come back. All we like sheep. Gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the passage is about this. It's about the gospel. And he has laid all of our iniquity on him. He was bruised for my iniquity. He was crushed. He was pierced for my iniquity. He was crushed, violently crushed to death because of my sin. Right Now, that's the gospel that would be fully displayed 7 
hundred years later. Why did God put it in the Word 700 years before? He put it there because He desperately wants every person in this room to come back. That it is His desire, not willing that any should perish, all should come to repentance, all should come back, and that you should know that it, it is, it's trustworthy to come. There is a reason you can count on Him. You can count on Him because what He said He would do way back here, He carried out in the Lord Jesus Christ point by point. As we go on with this next week, we will see more points of the way it it exactly is fulfilled. But it's not so that He can dazzle us. It's so that He can overcome all of the pressures that satanic powers put on you to convince you that going towards God and listening to the gospel is the wrong thing to do. And He's crying. He's crying through creation, but He's crying this way also, that we should pay attention to this. Because right at the center of this poem is a person. And right at the center of the, the, that section on the person is what he did on our behalf when he was bruised for our iniquities. This is the center of the message of God to all of us. So that he can remove the guilt of sin. So that he can impart to us eternal life so that He can give to us the potential to really know what it means to live. It's a tremendous passage. Again, I'm, I, would, I would ask you tonight, think about what is it? What, what are you doing with your life? I'm not going to ask you about sin. I'm going to ask you, what are you doing with your life? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? Is the knowledge of God the desire of your heart? Have you come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ and love for the people of God? Or are you just living for what you enjoy? Not that what you enjoy is in and of itself sinful, but is it your own way or is it His way? Because every one of those paths is scientifically designed to bring you to death. But you can come back because one has paid the price for our stupidity and our sin. And tonight, he's shouting to us. So again, I want to say, I'm saying this, this has been my burden all the way through. This is not so much just to talk about who he is, but to remind you that he's after you. And tonight, he's speaking to you. And tonight, he wants you to respond to him. So let's pray. Father, we're coming and asking you to take your word and work in our hearts. We pray for every person here. Father, I pray particularly for those who are in between. Who know your truth and are lured by this world. That you will work in their heart and bring them to yourself. That you will grant to them capacity and they will exercise faith. They will turn from their way and know what it is to really live. We give you thanks for the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for the plan you had from all eternity. And we ask you to fix it in our hearts and enable us to embrace it. And we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.